Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Jonathan Levin. Jonathan is co-founder and chief strategy officer of Chainalysis, a blockchain analytics company, which is valued at over $4.2 billion. Jonathan, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks so much, Aaron. Great to be here. Now, you run a, a super interesting blockchain analysis company, um, and you're sorting through like tons and tons of transactions, helping businesses, financial institutions, governments understand like how people use like cryptocurrency and other types of tokens. But blockchain, in some ways, it's like a, it's a public ledger. So did you just start by like doing uh, some deep analysis on the publicly available data? Is that how it started? Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe I'll rewind a little bit and give people a little bit of background uh, about myself. So, you know, I came across uh, cryptocurrencies over a decade ago uh, while I was studying in Oxford, looking at sort of the economics behind cryptocurrencies. And what I realized at that time was, yeah, the blockchain, as you say, is this open record of transactions that anyone can look at. And that was kind of an economist's dream. And so, you know, when I, when I looked at it, I said, well, there needs to be someone that understands the most about how and why people are actually using this ledger. And so the ledger contains all of these transactions, but it doesn't actually, you know, say, um, you know, which entity was putting those transactions into the blockchain. It doesn't say, you know, what the purpose was behind these transactions. And so being able to label that information was really the challenge um, that everyone had. And so that was the that was really the starting point of chain analysis was to say, you know, could we be the company that really understands the most about how and why people are using this technology? And can we label really the data that's publicly available that everyone is interested in um, with, with the context about which entities put those transactions? And there? how important is it to go all the way back to like T0 on a time equals zero on a given cryptocurrency, whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana, et cetera? Um, or is it okay to just start at some period of time? Yeah, so it's it's a really good question, and I think it gets into you know sort of the data half life discussion depending on what data business you're in. I think the the thing to note about you know blockchain in particular is that you know the actual existence of the transactions that people could be interested in are going to be perfectly preserved for all time. You know that is that is the thing behind the technology that. You know, blockchain does really, really well is preserves all the records for all time so that, you know, someone, you know, 20 years from now could refer back to a transaction that happened, you know, 10 years previous to now. Yeah. Assuming that that particular coin uh, doesn't go away or something like that, which sometimes they may. So, sometimes they may. Oftentimes, oftentimes that record even then is still, even if it, if it, even if it goes down to almost zero usage, there'll be a copy of that ledger somewhere existing in like a, an archive that someone will need to go dig out and sort of, you know, a sci-fi film. But the, 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 the point here is that, you know, that information is always there, which means actually that it, it actually extends the half-life of the information that we collect because the information we collect is ephemeral in nature because um, knowing which entity was around at the time five years ago, say, transacting, that entity may no longer exist 
um, in today's world. So if we were there at the time making a collection from that entity at that point in time, that data is now no longer available to be collected. You're somehow mapping these wallets to real life entities or as much as you can, you're trying to get, maybe it's fragments of that real life entity, but you're trying to get some sort of uh, data points about those wallets. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I would say that you know, until today, um, and just let's let's use Bitcoin as sort of the canonical example, is most of the transactions that exist in the Bitcoin ledger have been put there by services that individuals use to, you know, transact. Like a Coinbase or something like, like that. Like a Coinbase, yeah. like, like a BitPay to pay for goods and services. Um, so you could be trading. But all of those transactions, therefore, are being put there by services. And, and those services have come and gone over the history of Bitcoin. Right, Mt. Gox so, is no longer involved, right? Yeah, so, so you, if you're trying to collect the Mt. Gox wallet information today, you can't because Mt. Gox is no longer um, around. And so we have you know, a very large sort of effort for the last seven years really building that comprehensive collection mechanism to collect all of this ephemeral data and you know building that database of you know which of those services have put which transactions in the blockchain and how do you incent those services because to work with you because it's a bit of a data co-op i imagine right yeah so initially like we had no incentive for anyone to participate in the in the data co-op which is kind of the the chicken and the egg problem that that all businesses face and the interesting thing though we had was but we had the ability to go out and use these services ourselves and start to you know, create accounts at all of these different service providers and then understand you know, which of our transactions, how did they show up on the blockchain and then, and then start to run like pattern algorithms over that so that we could, we could capture most of the activity ourselves and then go to these customers and say, well, hey, well, we've already mapped out the wallet that you have and a whole bunch of wallets that you're interested in. Do you want to use us to be able to manage? It's a bit like how Plaid gets started, where Plaid is essentially starting out like scraping these banks and then says, hey, the bank, it would be much better if we just did an API between us. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, and, and I think that I think that though we have something maybe additional there, which is which is not just the convenience and the trust that gets built by an API integration, like actually these businesses need us to identify money laundering risks on their platform. And so, you know, they have a real utility to, um, you know, to stay in business if they use us um, for compliance purposes, which allows us to then get data rights on, um, on which transactions they're processing because they really need us across you know all the other entities that they're transacting with and they need to understand what what their customers are doing with their crypto you have a lot of different types of customers one type of customers is doing things for compliance you have another type of customer that might be doing things for like law enforcement or something in compliance I would imagine the bar for being accurate is super high. Like you really want to make sure it's high. Whereas in law enforcement, it's like might be okay if you gave a lead with 20% accuracy, they could like run down the lead or something, right? So how do you balance those different types of uh, needs for accuracy? Yeah, so actually the interesting thing about the accuracy for the government, and you're right on the sort of lead generation side of um, law enforcement, but actually we get used all the way 
end-to-end in these investigations where you're not just worried about, you know, well, show me some potential avenues of investigation. We're actually all the way used down to really proving beyond reasonable doubt that someone gained financially from a set of activity. And that's a very high bar. Okay, that's a beyond reasonable doubt. Okay, so super high. Yeah, so that's a super high bar on the accuracy front on on the law enforcement side. But you're right that like, even within our law enforcement customer base, we have these different we have these different stages of an investigation where you want to dial that confidence level up or down, depending on like whether you're looking for more leads or whether you're looking for, you know, being able to prove to a jury that someone has gained financial, like has gotten ill-gotten gains. Um, so I think that um, you know, we tend to think about providing sort of a very, you know, like the high, I don't know how to say this, but instead of like, the lowest common denominator, the, the highest common factor, right? Is like, we think about like making sure that our ground truth data and the picture that we give to all customers is at that very high bar of confidence and then start to think about more behavioral analytics around the set of ground truth data that we can we can give people sort of the lower confidence decision-making you know, potential um, for those types of use cases. And you're right on the compliance side, but actually also, you know, we're starting to power decisions that, you know, the business is taking. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm a company um, allowing users to buy and sell crypto and take it on and off my platform, I'm, I'm interested in what my competitive dynamics are. You know, are they moving their money off my platform to a platform that has, you know, a certain set of features or, or stuff like that. And so those entities, you know, the accuracy there is, is not, not important, you know, completeness is, is much more important. So, okay, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, there's Solana, there's, okay, but how do you know which one to go into? Is it just driven by your customer demand? Like customers are like, I really care about, you know, the coin number 52 or something? Yeah, so we have a, we have a bit of a range here. I think, I think one of the things that we've done over time is really matured sort of our approach to this where, actually to your point about the different use cases and needing certain different things, we've actually managed to create a solution where we actually have a very low cost of supporting new coins for, you know, really just risk screening. A quick dirty check, like that, that, like we've had to really lower our cost of what we call coin acquisition down to virtually zero um where we you're just like ingesting the ledger and doing some basic analysis of it yeah and and even even before we do that we can even start to tag up addresses even if we don't even have the underlying ledger often it came from uh, a bitcoin wallet or ethereum wallet or something like that usually to start some of these it's coming from some other wallet somewhere else right yeah, or, or someone reports to us now. Like we have, you know, scam reports that people send to us and, and pieces of information that our partners give us where we, we say, okay, well, we'll flag all of those in case any anyone else in our network is, is checking those transactions. And so, you know, we've had to really lower that to that use case. Now, to your point, like when you get to the sort of level of sophistication where it needs to be in all of our products at full support, then we dis- then we discern sort of, you know, where customer demand is and also where we think the market is heading. So we look at sort of where is the majority of economic activity happening 
in these blockchains, like looking at the number of transactions, looking at the total outstanding value of these coins, looking at um, those types of metrics to guide sort of how we're thinking about that for the for the full support at the top at the top level. Interesting. And then when you think about Bitcoin, you're really talking about a, a relatively small number of transactions with that are high value transactions that are happening. Whereas you know you could imagine scenarios with other blockchain s- systems where you're going to see much much higher volume of transactions with lower dollars because the transaction costs potentially are lower. I can imagine that could change the way you do analysis. Uh, like, how are you reacting to that? It's a fascinating part of the the industry, right? I think like you know if you if you look at the last ten years of crypto, we've sort of spent the time building. You know, what you could call like financial primitives and you know really you know, creating an asset class which to your point has sort of seen a massive appreciation and a lot of the activity is centered around you know ha- stores of value and like very high value transactions i think what you're seeing today in crypto is you know sort of an opposite trend which is you know using some of those financial primitives you're now seeing people build marketplaces of art and you know music rights distribution and ticketing and um, lots of lots of consumer applications which to your point is definitely going to need sort of consumer internet scale behind it and you know we do think that you know over sort of a medium term you know that's something that chainalysis needs to be well equipped for and so you know, thinking about how you deal with what people call like high throughput blockchains is is something that we have been we've sort of been working on for a couple of years. Especially if some of these things happen off chains, like if you can imagine a scenario where they're going to be doing tons of uh, transactions, you might do it off chain, and then you might settle it on a block or something like that. Yeah, and it, and I think you know for us, you know, we've been very focused on sort of the unique attributes of the blockchain, which allow us to build the business that we have, which is. You know, this we're very interested in providing analysis on where you have the same set of transactions that everyone in the world is interested in, right? And that's really the core value proposition. As soon as people start moving information off chain, which which even happens today in crypto, those are in, there are definitely interesting use cases there. But we we tend to stick away from them because you know we're we're fully about how do we provide the best context for the set of transactions that the most people in the world are going to be interested in? The other things I love about chain analysis is that you're this data co-op. Data co-ops have a lot of like winner take most properties to them. If you're going to give advice to another company starting a data co-op, because they're really hard to get going, like what advice would you give to another company? What are some of the non-obvious lessons? Yeah, I think from, from my perspective, you know, the the non-obvious thing is that you you do need to have some sort of compelling reason why someone is going to enter this into you. Like, don't take don't take this with rose-tinted lenses and say, well, if they if everyone did this, that this would be an amazing outcome. For number one through a hundred, it's very hard for them to get started. They're not getting that much value back, right? Very, very hard. And, and I'll tell you that, like, even as you scale a company, and like we look for new use cases today. You know, I have to push back on that with our com- with our stuff all the time. It's like, but, but really tell me why 
giving us this piece of information is a required capability that the customer could articulate to you. Why are they getting a clear benefit from sharing this? Um, why is this really helping them? Okay, got it. Right. And 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 so that's one lesson. I would say the, the second lesson for me is that very, like very, very difficult to do this if you don't have any sort of external lever that you have control over that you're able to push into this data co-op model, right? So the analogy that I would have is like, if, if, if the business that you're starting really depends on you going around to, you know, 25, 30 businesses, and everyone needs to pour out what they've got in the data silo into the middle, you're going to have a really hard time doing that BD work. And historically, like Averisk or something, the way they did that is they were like started by these companies or something. Right. Or they actually right. owned a, or Visa or something. They were they owned a piece of the company. Right. So 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 being able to 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 construct that model is like probably the hardest yes. thing to actually get Just done. top down where you're like the yeah. CEO or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So so instead like look from look for angles where you definitely want to do that but that you have some form of outside information that is valuable to the co-op that you can that you can dial up and down depending on how how much f- extra effort you need to have done like a good example would be like okay in a new sort of cyber fraud co-op that you want to start in a particular region of the world um you know what do you how do you think about like getting some data sets that you know maybe a lot of the people in that co-op already have access to how do you get it to them cheaper how do you provide some form of you know extra analysis on top of what everyone's using today that you know makes the data more valuable that then allows you to then you know you know create some incentive um and and also some trust factor with those with those entities to be able to do that with us like it was super straightforward like there was this resource that was in the middle that everyone was putting information in already and we we managed to feed it back to them with this extra analysis that we were doing ourselves okay so let's just riff so let's say you and i on the side we're going to start a new company and yeah. um we're going to build a data co-op or we're going to build a, a data company for uh to help companies understand days outstanding for all their new customers so every time you need to get a new customer we tell you the average days outstanding that everybody has for this so let's say you get ford and it turns out Ford pays their bills a lot faster than General Motors or something like that. Um, and we try to like connect to everyone's GL. Like, what advice would you have for the founders of this company to like get that moving? Because it's going to be hard to get people to give you connection to their GL. Yeah. So I, I would say like this, like, let's let's figure out, um, you know, who are the big bill payment companies in, in North America, say, um, let's go let's like QuickBooks or something or yeah, let's go to bill.com. Cause like bill.com's business is, um, is in becoming more ubiquitous and yes. getting more customers. They're not really, they're not really in the business of, you know, providing that sort of as a Analysis. data product, yep. as a data product to, um, you know, merchants who are needing to get paid. Although I'm definitely going to give that back to the bill.com people in the next week. Um, the, the, we just increased their value like 4X on this podcast. Four, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone um, invest now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to send it to the CRO. So uh, um, the, um, the way that, uh, and they're killing it. Right. So, um, but the, the way I would think about it is, you know, are there some even anonymized and aggregated forms of information that you can go and uniquely collect from, maybe a place that people weren't thinking about before in order to then go and say like, Hey, 
like, can we do a benchmarking study on your GL, like, versus like what we're seeing in the general market and show like, hey, I've, I've managed to uniquely connect this like interesting benchmark and, you know, want to make sure that, you know, you might have some room here to, to you know, maybe open up some free cash flow or, or do something that, that um, someone could uh, someone could do. Um, but that, that would be my first approach is go, go to find like a unique source of information where po possibly people aren't using that today and, and run some analysis and then, you know, walk around the market and see, see, who, see who's interested in that set of information. All right, cool. Now, historically, like venture capitalists, like have been a little bit wary of data companies and raising money has historically been difficult for data companies. I know for SafeGraph, when we raised our Series B, like we had a great outcome, but it was it wasn't easy. Like a lot of VCs said, oh, "I'm not interested in data businesses." Now, Chainalysis seems to be maybe proof that this is changing. You guys have raised, I think, last time I checked, 365 million dollars, 4.2 billion dollar valuation, which is amazing. Like, how do you see that evolving? Yeah, so I think that. Um... Look, we we've been through sort of a journey and in, in sort of enterprise enterprise SaaS, where you know VCs have been very focused on, particularly in this in this in the VCs that would be focused on these type of companies, very focused on sort of enterprise SaaS multiples, and you've seen sort of amazing outcomes left and right in, in the enterprise software space. The 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 thing that the thing that everyone in the VC world. Need, like has to wrap their heads around is how proprietary is the access to information that a data company has because like if that is the primary asset like there needs to be a really compelling story on not just uh well firstly it needs to be proprietary like there has to be a reason why you as a company are the only the only company that can go out and collect all of this information and then second um they need to understand sort of like your distribution strategy and how that how that further compounds your data advantage. And they'll want to ask like those, they're just not like used a data co-op type of thing or something like, like, a, that, like yeah. a like a data co-op type thing. And so and because they're really trying to answer, well, you know, if it is so proprietary and you've got really great distribution, do you also have a long enough half-life to monetize? Um, you know, this incredible advantage that you've got today. And those types of questions are just not very natural to investors that have been very focused on net dollar, reten net dollar retention and churn and, and sort of the mechanics and measurement of that. And, it, and I think if you look at even SaaS, right? I mean, SaaS really born, I mean, somewhere in the mid 2000s. Um, and, you know, now... Like there were no metrics then to measure like the S1s that were being made. Like they were just like completely new metrics. Right. Even the ARR is relatively new or the Cactel TV or all the all the traditional things, efficiency scores, et cetera. Yeah. And so now you're very like, you know, 15 years in, you're very conversant in those metrics and everyone is expected to be able to reel them off. And we have things like Saster and all these other great resources that have been really helpful to all of us and great bloggers on it. Totally. And so like, how do you measure, how do you measure coverage? Right? Like, yeah, how do you measure really like, hard, like really hard? How do you measure sort of like what degree of distribution someone has in a market? Um, how do you measure data half-life? 
like ob- objectively from the outside. I mean, generally VCs are not good at looking at products, right? If you think of a typical series B investor, they're going to look at your metrics. They're probably even in the SaaS software, they maybe even not even use the software. They may even not know what it looks like, right? right. So they're, they're probably not looking at these types of things. And obviously data is even harder to see. You can't get like a, de- a demo necessarily of data. Yeah, and, and I think like, you know, you know this very well from your go-to-market, but like structuring a, a data bake-off between two two products is oftentimes how someone's making a decision in the in in the DAS world. And like that that's not really something that a VC is, is particularly well equipped to do today. So um and so what I think about is um no, firstly we need to like each business does need to have like very clear North Star metrics on their own data advantage and be able to tell the story like eloquently about like why they have proprietary access. What is their distribution strategy? What does the half-life look like? Like that's like, if that is very clear and you can paint a really strong story, I think you can, you can get someone over the hump today and like people will, will start to understand it. I think that, um, the thing that we've managed to do very successfully is combine it with then enterprise software uh, metrics that that we've owned some of the workflows associated to some of the decisions that people take based on our data. And this is where like, obviously everyone's business is very different, but I said, you know, we need to own, we need to really own also the workflow around investigations when it comes to crypto. Like no one, no government agency in the world should want to investigate cryptocurrency related criminal activity without the use of our product reactor. No one in our compliance world should want to, you know, really be able to like monitor for money laundering risk without actually using our APIs to screen their transactions. And so those things have helped us paint this story of like, look, the real story is the data. We are a data company. We've amassed this incredible advantage. But ultimately, and and we will choose which of these workflows we need to dominate over time as they become big enough markets. And as and as we can see, like people are super sticky in workflow when it comes with the addition of proprietary data they get used to having at their fingertips. Now, pushing back on the proprietary thing a bit, like if you think of Zoom Info, which is probably the most successful data company that has been started the last 15 years or so, you know, they sell business contact information that could just be seen on a, it's basically what you see on a business card, the name, the title, the phone number, the email address. I know it doesn't seem like that proprietary per se. Now they, they you know, they're, they're, they say that, you know, well, we have more accurate and we have more breadth than anybody. And that's probably how they get a lot of their customers, but there's probably other ways to piece it together. So how do you think of like that type of data business? Yeah, I think that like, it's an interesting question, right? Because like there is a level of proprietary, at least methodology then. Yeah, cleaning the data. The the, the analytics can, so so, so there can be, so, but then then I think the point is, is that you're not, I mean, you are obviously a data business, but like you're going up a level where, like there's some proprietary analytics that you're able to run that actually right. other people or, or they, you know, a scale maybe matters at the end. It's just like Walmart can buy toilet paper at a cheaper price. Like they might be able to 
make that marginal next business contact at a cheaper price than other people and then they could sell it and so scale kind of matters but, eventually. That, but, that, but that's super vulnerable right so i think that i think that in today's world and this is why like i i i think like and obviously zoom zoom info is an awesome company and has paved the way for like a lot of stuff but like you know you look if if, if pure sort of engines of scale is sort of your your advantage in the data world you, you don't have like from a vc perspective and from a like a real long-term sort of 10-year view you don't have real advantage unless you're unless you're able to compound that somehow through distribution or methodology and zoom info is now buying applications companies so you see this movement of some data companies also becoming either creating or buying application companies it's extremely rare to go the other way. It's I've, I've almost never seen a SaaS or application company like create a data business. Like, why is it so hard to go the other way? I think the 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 reason that it boils down to is that application companies are so nervous about sort of the trust that they have with their customers over the protection of information today that it's super difficult to risk any of that and go the other way. Whereas if you've managed to amass some sort of data that lots of people need, then you can start to structure your application legal arrangements and data arrangements so that you can actually step into workflow. Like the other way around just becomes very tricky because you've, you've sacrificed any of those data rights in order to achieve distribution in your application business in order to just like, you know, sell more. Um, and you're not thinking about it yet as, you know, what could we be aggregating? What could we be uh, selling back as a data product? But Chainalysis has a very big business selling into government, law enforcement, national security, et cetera. A lot of, you know, quote unquote, Silicon Valley based companies um, don't, you know, don't often like to sell into law enforcement um, to me, that's like kind of a competitive advantage for chain analysis because you're maybe not going to have competitors from this like really big company. Like, how do you see that? And how do you see that as part of your mission? Yeah, I think that like the way I think about it as part of our mission is, is not actually about business defensibility at all. Um, the way I think about it as part of our mission is that ultimately sort of I believe that you know, more and more value is going to be stored and transferred over this technology, right? And I see that as a total inevitability and just a matter of time. It certainly has been happening the last few years, right? We're, yeah, we're seeing a right. massive increase, yeah. Ma- massive increase. So the, the, the thing that could slow it down is governments not understanding what the ultimate potential of this technology can be. So some bad regulator or something or, yeah. Yeah, and, and really like you've seen it sort of in the national security space with ransomware and other things where you know, there can be policymakers who, you know, don't understand that, you know, truly like innovation is the you know, biggest form of national security that we could have. And so like we think we have to think about the way that, you know, we set up um, a regulatory regime for this industry that both, you know, protects public safety, but also doesn't compromise on, you know, how fast paced and how much innovation can come from this and how much economic value, but also political power will come from, um, you know, a country like the US or, or any country, frankly, um, you know, being able to foster innovation on, on this technology. So, you know, when I think about our, our government business, 
you know, I think about, you know, we need to be in many markets around the world, um, you know, making sure that governments are able to, you know, really mitigate the risks associated with new technology, because there are always risks, um, but also open up the opportunity for people to continue to innovate and build, build applications that everyone will use. Now, selling into government is a different selling motion than even selling to a big bank or big financial services. Like what's kind of the same and what's different? So I think that, um, you know, it, it is enterprise sales. You've got to have a robust sort of enterprise sales methodology. But that would be the same of selling into a big bank like JP Morgan or something, Ex- right? Exactly the same, right? Like you've got, you've got, you've got to figure out where budget is. You've got to figure out why it's now. You've got to figure out the paper process. You really need to like make sure that you've got a consistent methodology across your sales team to be able to forecast. The, the thing about the thing about government that's, that's very different is, um, well, you've got, you know, budget cycles in different countries are going to make your business very seasonal. So you've got to be able, you've got to be able to sustain that and you've got to be able to, you know, understand that that's really just how things work. And so, you know, the nice thing for us at the moment is, you know, we're selling in, you know, I think about 60, 65 different markets around the world. And so we're keeping track of, you know, those different budget cycles. And luckily they're not, luckily they're not all on the same fiscal year. (laughs) (laughs) They don't all start on October 1st or something. Yeah. 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 They don't don't all do that. Um, So, so that, that, that's sort of helpful, but, but, but the point is that, you know, it's going to be a seasonal business. It's definitely, um, you know, for the most part, I would say um, at least for us, it's, it's a fairly lumpy business, right? We, we tend to, you know, move in through like one unit or one division that, you know, sees the future in some way, um, but now are building up to sort of broader enterprise capabilities. And I think that to that extent, you know, the the ability to do land and expand is actually very similar in the government as it is in sort of financial services. In fact, oftentimes it's even, even easier because, um, uh, these things are these things are more connected, and it's it, it is very hierarchical. It's it's pretty structured. Now, the stereotype of you know law enforcement is that they're not as data savvy. Is that true? And how has that changed over like the last five years? Yeah, I think that the like there's clearly a massive push on data strategy more broadly within government agencies around the world. I, I I've seen it firsthand, sort of where we where we started and people are obsessed with, you know, a workflow product that sits on someone's desk that someone, you know, it's like, you know, procedure. Yeah. 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 Should we, yeah. Should we buy a car or should we buy like a tool that sits on someone's desk? Like, you know, they, they got there to be able to think about, you know, bringing in software like that. I think the, the tricky part, and 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 I think the, the government has gone through at least one, maybe two cycles internationally of what I would call like data integration is like they've got a lot of data that they need to make sense of as, as an organization. You know, if you think about tax agencies around the world, they collect a lot of information, they need to make sense of it. And so there's been a lot of, you know, maybe, maybe even a decade or, or so at this point, like people really, you know, trying to make sense of that i think they haven't i think that the latest trend the one that you're pointing out is you know they're starting to think about like buying commercial data to think about data outside of their walls to to bring in and enrich sort of some of the things that they've already collected and that's like a new 
that's a whole new frontier for a lot of government agencies because um you know typically and this this applies across the board they've thought about like well we have a lot of this information ourselves like why do we need to go and ask a private company about it and the more and more you know and this is you know across different communities um you know th there's a realization that you know the same like zoom info you know we need that type of information as a business to run and so like the government's also waking up to the idea that that there's you know high value in, in being able to buy data to enrich you know their own even their own sort of government applications as well at safecraft we sell into governments uh what state or local or federal and i have found personally that the that the data capabilities of the people who are working in these things has has grown dramatically in the last couple of years and the the people themselves have leveled up that they've gotten much more data savvy that they realize the importance i don't know if you're seeing something similar yeah, de definitely. And I think it's also like top top down as well. Even the decision makers are more data oriented today. Totally. So like if I think about sort of, you know, and we, we think a lot about trying to get our customers to give us, you know, what are, what are the required capabilities that they're looking at when they come to, you know, cryptocurrency investigations writ large, right? Like I'm not, I'm not interested in someone saying like, I'll have another, I'll have another seat. Thank you. Like I want to understand, I really want to understand sort of what are all of the required capabilities that you need and more and more it's you know i need not just an application but i actually need a data feed i need an api endpoint that i can hear i need something that we're going to be able to to play with and and integrate into some sort of government product so you know we really have seen that transition and i think it's very top down so i think that it starts with literally i've seen sort of heads of agencies actually now get that there needs to be a data first strategy and um that's that's something that used to be something over in the technology division or over in like a, a particular shop um you've also seen the emergence of titles of people i mean uh, the u.s treasury department has a chief data officer um uh, yeah right and so um that really makes sense in a world where you know you know, this is at the core of, of them being able to achieve their mission. Now, a couple of questions about just starting companies. So you're a co-founder of Chainalysis and your other co-founder is the CEO. Like, how do co-founders work best together to build an enduring long-term partnership? Yeah, great, uh, great question. And I think that um, one of the things about being, um, you know, they say that, uh, and I know you know this firsthand, but like being the CEO is very lonely. Um, the, uh, the the way that the way that I think about like a non founder, a, a non CEO founder, is you get put in sort of a lot of utility positions that um, really serve the need for um, you know founders to have good relationships, and in that like you need to sort of leave a lot of things up the side and like particularly check your ego and be able to step into sort of some of those roles and and play that utility player and run sales for nine months like i've done this year and um you know like done some of those tasks to be able to um to help the company just scale and grow as you build out the executive team and and operational functions i think the the other thing that i'll say is that um it's important to, for founders to realize how much they need each other and it's the it's the mutual need for like thought partnership and really the sort of uh as you scale a company 
and you bring in those executives that have seen the scale of the company before and know how to you know, build the operational rigor to get you to the next level. Um, the, again, the thing that you lose the most is the ability to innovate. And as founders, you have a, an opportunity to not, not sort of distance yourself from the rest of the team, but really think about together, how do you continue to innovate as a company and really, like, that will be something unique that founders will share in a language that no one else in the company will ever understand. And plus, so, you have the credibility to, to implement it or something, right? Plus, you have the credibility to implement it. And so that's something where, like, I think that, you know, over time, just being sort of vocal about that to each other and, and realizing, like, what those challenges as an organization will be, like, brings you closer together as founders. And, you know, myself and Michael... Um, have definitely over the last seven years sort of your relationship changes a lot but you know you know as you scale you know we just crossed 400 people at chain analysis and um you know we are starting to think about well how do you continue to innovate at the pace that you want and that's a conversation that that michael and i have on, on a very frequent basis as well as with executives but uh, you know i find particularly you know, founder to founder, you can you can you can try and solve some of those problems. There are companies uh, like HubSpot, Google, Dropbox, Airbnb, Airbnb that have these long-term enduring partnerships between co-founders. There are other companies where the non-CEO co-founders seem to leave once the company gets to a certain level of success. Like, have you learned anything from studying these other companies? Yeah, so I actually, um, and I haven't done this yet, so I'm going to announce it here, but I'm going to, if anyone does want to reach out to me as a non-CEO founder, I'm actually going to start a group. We get like you and Darvesh Shah from HubSpot. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to start a group on it because I think that, I think it is a unique experience that isn't talked about enough. And so, yeah, I've definitely had some some mentorship from from founders in that position before, um, and oftentimes, um, you know, it, it is very challenging. Um, but it but there isn't like there's lots of CEO groups and you know you know help for you know the lonely person at the top, like the person who's sort of helping that person stay above the water uh, and paddling furiously below doesn't 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 oftentimes get the same level of attention. So I want I want to make sure that we do that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that is generally bad advice? I think, and this applies mainly in, in crypto right now. Um, but, but I think, um, I think, I think one of the things that is happening with capital raising in general, um, and then particularly like VCs talk about this, it's like raise, raise more than you have to. Um, and I think that, uh, one of the things that I've seen, particularly in very fast-paced markets, is that there is such a there is such a momentum-building activity when it comes to fundraising, where you don't actually you can be more you can value your equity more, create some scarcity around it that actually allows you to raise sequentially with less dilution. And you know the actual act of these funding rounds today, and particularly in a cash in, in a capital-rich environment, is like that's a much easier thing to to accomplish than most founders understand. Um, so I think that it's a it's it's kind of that like classic sort of sales technique um, that your that the VCs that the VCs will will try and play. But like actually, um, I think you should. I think founders could be a little bit more conservative today and and sort of yeah you know, 
get lower dilution over time. Okay, interesting. I love it. That's great. Uh, well, thank you, Jonathan. Re- really appreciate it. Where can people find out about you on the interwebs? Well, if you want to learn more about Chainalysis, um, you can go to chainalysis.com. Being able to spell that is a little bit difficult. But, uh, I'm <laughs> we sure have a very that. smart audience, so uh, uh, I think they can I, I, do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you I think we have the, the highest show. IQ so, audience of any podcast. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can I can only imagine. So um, uh, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Johnny J O N Y L E V I N on Twitter. Um, and, and I follow you on Twitter. You're a great tweeter. So yeah. One, one to, yeah. I, I want to get back now that I'm, now that the end is in sight for me uh, as part, as leading, as leading the revenue organization on an interim basis, I'm going to <laughs> I'm, I'm get back on Twitter. And, All right. And I love start, it. Okay. And start tweeting a yeah, bit more. The hiatus about, has uh, been too long. Yeah. The, the hiatus has been too long. So that's really, that's really where to find me. Um, and uh, yeah, no, really appreciate the conversation. And I think that the future of DAS is, is extremely bright. And I think what you're doing here in terms of establishing you know what are the ways that people should understand these businesses is critical for not just fundraising but actually entrepreneurs building great companies awesome well thank you uh Jerry, for joining us on world of Death. thanks so much thanks for listening if you enjoyed the show consider rating this podcast and leaving a review for more world of das and das is d-a-a-s you can subscribe on spotify or apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts and also check out youtube for videos you can find me at twitter at at oren that's a-u-r-e-n oren and we'd love to hear from you world of das is brought to you by safegraph <laughs>